0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I'll be speaking to Anthony Dapperin about his book on the 2019 Hong Kong protests, City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. It's published by Scribe Publications earlier this year. Anthony is an Australian-born lawyer, but long-time resident of Hong Kong. He's written extensively on Hong Kong and Chinese politics, culture, and business, for publications such as The Atlantic, The New Statesman, Foreign Policy and The Guardian. Anthony, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome.
1: Thank you, pleasure to be here.
0: Now, I just want to start out, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong? Now, I'm sure listeners will be really interested to hear about how an Australian lawyer came to write a book about the 2019 Hong Kong protests.
1: Yeah, it is a bit of a meandering path. Um, I came to Hong Kong originally as a as a, a, a graduate, having studied law and Chinese language in in both Melbourne and also on exchange at uh, Peking University, um, and then came to Hong Kong to start my career as a lawyer, where I hoped to be able to combine my Chinese language skills with my uh, with my legal qualification to to practice here, and so I did that from beginning in 1999 um, for many years. Um, uh, and spent a lot of time traveling back and forth and living between Hong Kong and Beijing. Um when the umbrella movement happened here in Hong Kong in 2014, it was it was a very striking um time of a really historic moment at the time, the the high point of of political protest in Hong Kong and, and it struck me as a it really struck me at the time as a as a unique moment in the city's history and perhaps it came at a unique moment in my own personal relationship with the city as well. And that resulted in um, me writing something about the Umbrella Movement and after that writing a a short book for Penguin called um, City of Protest, which was a history of um, dissent in Hong Kong, starting in the 1960s up to and finishing with with the Umbrella Movement in 2014. And that was published in 2017. and, And I thought that I was sort of done with Hong Kong politics at that point. Um... But then when the protests began happening last year in 2019, and on a scale far beyond anything that we'd seen, whether in 2014 or previously in Hong Kong's history, I, I of course began writing about those protests for, for various media outlets and, and, and commenting about them to, to various um, media outlets. And then I realized as the protests grew and, and carried on that I had to Respond to them somehow in 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 book form, whether that would be a, an updated version of my previous book or something new and The larger the scale grew and and, and the the more intense and the, the more uh, the, the, the more important last year became, it became very clear that an entirely new book was going to be necessary to properly make sense of what happened last year and put it into the full historical context which explained it and also to dig into some of the many different. Cultural, political, and and legal aspects of what was happening last year and that resulted in in the new book, City on Fire.
0: Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, I really enjoyed it. It was like just so engaging and so gripping for I, I'd recommend it to anyone if you want to learn anything about Hong Kong or the Hong Kong protests. Um, it's it was just, you know, I couldn't put it down. Um now turning to the book. You, you begin the book with really vivid images of tear gas and specifically you write how it has been and is being used by the Hong Kong police force against protesters and citizens. Now, as I say, I enjoyed the book so much and I found these imi- images so evocative, I actually found myself dreaming about being in clouds of tear gas, um, as you do as a Hong Kong resident, I guess. Um, you describe both the misuse of tear gas, for example, the use of expired canisters, when tear gas has been used punitively, and also at times, how tear gas has been used by the police force in breach of international guidelines. Um, and that how it's also, in some ways, infringes other rights and freedoms of Hong Kongers. And now, you also talk about the, both the physical and psychological effects of tear gas. For example, how it turns individual protests into seething, writhing mobs. And for the police, they react to these effects of tear gas. And they react to the protesters as they become this objectified other. Can you tell us more about tear gas in the 2019 Hong Kong protests, either by its direct use or perhaps what it represents about the entire movement?
1: Yeah, certainly. And I should say, firstly, thank you for the, the very kind words about, about my book. I really appreciate that. It's very kind. Um, but uh, yeah, on, on the tear gas, um, as I think you, you just alluded to, tear gas really became a a defining experience of, of the protests last year and as a result of everyday Hong Kong residents' experience of living last year. Um, and that's why I felt it was important to, to open the book with a, a fairly detailed examination of tear gas because uh, it was something that um, when tear gas was fired on one occasion in, in 2014, on the first day of the Umbrella Movement, that it was really the firing of the tear gas that prompted outrage um, led to the Umbrella Movement occupation beginning, um, was seen as something that was really outrageous and brought thousands of people onto the streets. And, and it didn't happen again in the course of 2014 after that one day, given the, the strong public reaction. Now, you fast forward to, to five years later, and we had a situation where tear gas was used on the streets of Hong Kong every single weekend but one for for seven months, um, and often many days during the week as well. Um, and it 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 Uh, had clearly become normalised by both from the police point of view in terms of how they used it to to police the protests and from protesters' point of view in terms of how they came to expect it and learn to deal with it um, and that it no longer caused the same shock among Hong Kongers, which in itself was a sort of a sad comment on the state of affairs that this had now become a city where it didn't seem unusual anymore to have police tear-gassing the streets. Um, But the... The extensive use of tear gas, um, you know, huge amounts used, um, many occasions. Um, at some Hong Kongers, with their with their great sense of humour, referred to the days when police used uh, unleash huge amounts of tear gas on the streets as an all you can eat tear gas buffet, um, which I always you know, a great sort of way of dealing with it with it with humour. But um, it, it, it was it was notable for a number of reasons, a few of which you you just picked up in in, in your question. I mean, firstly. It was notable that the police were, were using it often as inappropriately. Now, inappropriately, whether that was because they were using it as a as a first resort rather than a last resort, they would just turn up and fire tear gas as a, almost as a matter of course. They were using it even when there weren't that many people there, or there weren't even protests there. There are many occasions where they've just fired tear gas at a street full of members of the media filming them firing tear gas. Um, they used it, as you mentioned, in breach of manufacturer's guidelines, whether that was beyond the, the the so-called use-by date, whether that was indoors in enclosed spaces, such as places like inside MTR stations, clearly something that's that's inadvisable or using it when protesters had no ready means of escape. And the whole point of tear gas is to disperse a crowd. Um, so if you're firing it somewhere where people are not able to disperse or indoors, that, that defeats the whole purpose of, of, of tear gas. And it turns tear gas from a crowd control tool into a punishment tool, which it seemed was happening regularly last year. Crowd, uh, police were using tear gas just to punish people for being there. Um, and, and, and it's, it seemed to me that at the end of the day, given the the, the impact that the tear gas has on a crowd, and, and turning them, as I say, into um, people you know running around in pain and, and, and crying out, and 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 they it, they become to be perceived as disorganized and chaotic. I think it helped the police um, psychologically in the sense that they were being called upon to violently disperse their own citizens. Um, by using tear gas on them, I think it helped them to, as i said, other the crowd so they no longer were a crowd of their fellow citizens or fellow even human beings, and just became a an objective mass to be controlled and policed, and it made them easier to made it easier for the police to to subject those crowds to violence. so that was all from the police side and then from the the protester side, there was an effect not only of protesters getting used to tear gas and learning how to handle it and being comfortable with with handling it through gas masks and face masks and the various techniques they learned to to put out the tear gas canisters or or throw them back at the police or extinguish them with water and these various techniques they learned. But also the tear gas had this effect of of really unifying the crowd um, and unifying them against the police. And it, it's it's not the first time this effect has been observed. And I'd read some interesting writing by the the well-known writer Simon Winchester. He was a a a journalist, a young journalist in Northern Ireland in the the late 60s, early 70s. And uh, Northern Ireland was the first place on on British soil that that tear gas was used. Um, And at the time, Winchester observed how the tear gas seemed to unite this crowd of otherwise disparate people into a solid solid group of people united in their hatred of the people who were gassing them. And we saw the exact same effect here in Hong Kong last year people when they were tear gassed first dispersed of course because the tear gas was 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 forcing them to but as soon as the tear gas sort of blew away i saw time and time again the crowds would reform um and they would be chanting and this really struck me in particular on the first day that tear gas was used last year june 12th last year the crowds reformed and as they gathered and headed back towards the police lines they were chanting um go hong kongers this really unifying rallying cry, and it was it was clear they were th- this was an issue of of identity um it, it, the tear gas was bringing them together as as a crowd rallying around this identity and the the other from the crowd's point of view was the police and then as the protests developed last year, a huge part of the protests was this antipathy towards the police and this and this um uh dissatisfaction with the way the police were were carrying out their role and policing the protests so um uh, so so there, there was, the tear gas had a, a really important role, I think, on the protesters' side as well. Um, and then even just for passers-by, finally, or the ordinary Hong Kong resident, given that tear gas was deployed all over the city, in every single district of the city except the outlying islands. It was deployed at some point in residential areas, um, near nursing homes. It, it got into people's flats people walking home. You couldn't avoid it even if they had nothing to do with the protests. So just talking about... Uh, tear gas, um, planning your journeys around tear gas, just, you know, discussing where tear gas was and wasn't and whether it was safe to be in certain places. Uh, young children have an, uh, had an awareness of tear gas and talked about tear gas you know, casually because it was something they heard being talked about around them. And so, as I said, at the end, it just became this really defining aspect of life in Hong Kong last year and a defining aspect of the protests. And that's why I, I spend quite a bit of time uh, going into it at the start of the book.
0: Yeah, no, it's really interesting. I I recall um, in one part of the book where, just picking up on your example of kids talking about it, you know, in the playground, the new game became, you know, police and protesters and it's, you know, like this kind of idea of running from the police and it's just so, it's become so normalised. Um, and as you say, um, just picking up on what you just said now, it you know, there's kind of this dis- dissatisfaction with the police and their method of policing has kind of, unified um, and helped to bring a kind of common identity um, to the protests and l- link protesters with um, other members of the community. Um, in, in one section of the book, you argue that the 2019 protests will likely be the defining experience of this generation of young people in Hong Kong. Now you write, um, on page 262, that when the liminal experience of a significant group of individuals overlaps with the liminal experience for a society as a whole, this can result in the development of generational consciousness, the identity forming process of a generation with particular socio-political characteristics. Now, I, I was really interested in this point of um, unifying an identity because you, you pick up that there's kind of been, there's not just these frontline radical protesters, but somewhat of a radicalization of the wider community. I, I loved your example. You talked about one of the protests in Wong-Tai-Sing Wong um, where local residents became engaged in clashes with the police, where they're literally um, coming down from their apartments in their slippers and fighting yes. back with wok lids. Yes. Um, it's, it's just like it would be comedic if it wasn't, you know, also tragic, mm-hmm. I think. Yes, um,
1: that's right.
0: So, you know, I'm interested um what do you think has provoked, provoked the reaction from local communities in this in this way um, um,
1: yeah. yeah it, uh, it it's I, I think it does come back to this question of of identity that and it's something that I, do, I try to to bring out in the book that even though the protest began because of a proposal by the government to introduce a a piece of legislation, the extradition bill, and that was the initial spark for the protests. They very quickly became about much more than that. And at the at the at the core of the protest was this anxiety over Beijing's influence in Hong Kong and this anxiety that a unique Hong Kong identity would would be lost. And all the things that Hong Kongers see as making Hong Kong special and and, and unique and, and different from from the rest of China would, would be subsumed um, by Beijing's influence and so I think that's what um, is sort of the common theme that runs through all those things whether it's the formation of the generational identity of these young students who grow up with these protests as their formative experience and indeed some of them the formative experience has been both the umbrella movement and this um, you know happening within five years of each other um, and so this this experience for, for, for that generation. Um, Happening at this time of incredible change for Hong Kong, I think is 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 clearly going to lead to this to this generational consciousness, sort of the um, the umbrella movement or the the, the 2019 generation, um, and will will be with them through through their lives. And and at the core of that consciousness, that generational consciousness, I think is this is this concern about preserving what they see as a unique Hong Kong identity. And then going back to the the ordinary residents coming down in their in their slippers and their tank tops. Um, with their walk covers to battle the police downstairs, it partly, it was driven by a, a dissatisfaction with the police, a sense that the police were were out of control in their policing of the protests and were being seen, I think in particular by those residents, as uh, as invading their homes, as encroaching upon the the private space of, of their homes and their communities, um, and, and anger at police doing that in a, in a brazen uncontrolled fashion. And I think what many residents saw as an unnecessary fashion. Um, And that, and that was sort of one aspect of the anger. But then I think a broader sense of the anger was again, this sense that they are all Hong Kongers, even these ordinary residents and these people who might not be the, the, the young more motivated protests who get out on the front lines in their, in their black block attire and, and fight the police every weekend. Um, But that doesn't mean that they don't feel the same concern and have the same identity issues at heart um and that when they are prompted or when when the protests come to them as opposed to them having to go to the protests that they don't then come out and and join it as well so i think it's this common issue of of identity that that there's a theme that runs through through all of those different um aspects of what we saw last year
0: yeah and i really think you draw that point out in your book you talk a lot um about the kind of new formation of The identity of what it is to be a Hong Konger, um, you know, and this idea of imagined community. Um, For example, you give it one, you, one of your examples that you give is when you were picked up by a, what's called a school bus. Maybe you can explain a little bit what that is and driven home. Um, You know, another example might be when citizens during the sieges of the universities, um, and there were a lot of just for people outside Hong Kong, there are a lot of students trapped in um, inside City University and also then Polytechnic University, um, which became known as the PolyU siege. Um, and citizens went out and tried to deliver supplies and that kind of thing to them. And these kind of um, incidents helped to forge this imagined community that you you talk about and this new identity of what it is to be a Hong Konger.
1: Mm, mm. Y- y- Yeah, there are many different ways in which people were getting involved in and contributing to the protest movement um, beyond just protesting. And and you gave two great examples there. So the school buses phenomenon was... Was, was was a great one it was the school buses was a euphemism given to um, volunteer drivers um, often you know just you know, middle class people with you know with, with cars and often you know perhaps with children who were protesting or, or otherwise um, who volunteered to pick up protesters after protests and and to take them safely home and this particularly gained momentum after there was a, a an attack by triad affiliated gang members on some protesters coming home on the MTR in, in Yun Long Station in, in late July. And after that, there was a sense that it was not necessarily safe for protesters still dressed in their protest attire to go back home to their residences in the in the various suburbs and communities of Hong Kong um, because they might be subject to these kind of attacks. And so this school bus movement grew up where people would, um, as they sort of joked, pick the kids up after school. So after the protests had finished, they would drive these long convoys of cars, um, pick up people and, and, and drive them home. And so I had the... The good fortune to be picked up by a by a school bus one night um, when all the the streets were blocked and there were no taxis and the public transport had been shut down and I was otherwise facing a, a long walk home um, and a, a school bus happened past and, and offered to give me a ride um, and, and they were just a young a young couple in fact were, one of them was a was a filmmaker. Um, and they, they talked about how they'd been doing this every weekend, and it was sort of what they saw as their the contribution they could make to the movement. Um, other people made contributions in other ways, such as donating um, donating supplies or food or equipment, um, and there were, there were huge donations made, as you mentioned, during the, the university sieges, um, uh, but also at other times, just every weekend where there were protests, of course, there was huge amounts of Equipment that the protesters used, whether that was sort of hard hats or or gas masks or first aid equipment um, you know, food and and snacks and various other things, and all of that had been donated by the community um, and so there was this sense of 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 unity and a sense that that people from all parts of the community could contribute in their own way and and that led to this description of the protest i mean a very common description of the protests that we would have seen in the media was there were so called leaderless protests, and indeed there was no one at the front lines with a a megaphone telling people what to do, as they had been back in 2014 when when, when Joshua Wong and the other student leaders uh, were very much directing the proceedings. So indeed, the the protests last year were leaderless and were organised through technology, through chat groups, through sort of grassroots organisation. But at the same time, some sociologists have used the term rather than leaderless, they they were leaderful, in that um, everyone had a role to play. And, And in a sense, this... The fact that there was no leader or no central direction really empowered people um, and, and made people feel that they could each contribute in whatever way they they felt they were capable of and comfortable with doing, um, and it meant that I think there was probably more buy in and more involvement than there had been during the umbrella movement, um, and so this this sort of leaderfulness that we saw was it was it was a result of. Um, of, of the leaderlessness, and, and therefore sort of enabled people to contribute in, in various, in various different ways. And the other important principle underlying all of this was the so-called no splitting or no cutting off principle. So, again, uh, well, looking back historically, Hong Kong's pan democrats have always had a, a problem with, with 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 being unified. There've been various sort of factions and different parties, and 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 people doing. Not, not operating with the same sort of unified voice that the pro-Beijing uh, DAB party does. And a problem that emerged during the Umbrella Movement were distinct camps emerging, sort of the Admiralty Camp and the Mong Kok Camp Um, Some people following the student leaders, other people being unhappy that the student leaders were there, sort of telling them what to do. And that led to a lot of dissension among the protester ranks back in 2014, and arguably was one of the things that led to that movement ultimately collapsing and being uh, swept away by the government without much resistance. So I think people learned from that. And and then this year, there was a new principle, the so-called no splitting or no cutting off principle, which was that even if other members of the protest movement are doing things that you don't agree with, you shouldn't criticize them or, or split from them or cut them off. Um, you're not obliged to follow them, you're not obliged to participate yourself, but you should continue to contribute in the way that you feel is appropriate or comfortable. Um, um, but the movement as a whole should remain unified. And that was a, a, a really remarkable aspect of, of last year's protests. It, it may It meant that the the protests were able to continue, I think, for such a long period of time with such strong community support. Um, became self-correcting in the sense that when things happened that were perhaps inappropriate, such as the, the the protests at the airport, which led in some led to some violent scenes, the movement would self-correct. It, it also meant that whenever protesters did something that the government perhaps was hoping the general community would regard as, as outrageous and unacceptable and cause the protesters to lose support, it in fact didn't. And, and the community you know, forgave the protesters, stuck to their no-splitting principle and continued to sort of unite around the protesters' cause. Um, and so that was, I guess, the, the, the other aspect that, that, that unified community response um, and, and, and led to this, I guess, the sustainability of the movement overall.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting because in the, especially in the media overseas, perhaps more so than what we've seen here in Hong Kong, you know, the image of a Hong Kong protester are these young, what have become known as um, braves, you know, the radical frontliners with their um, yellow hats and goggles and their their pink pig masks and decked out all in black. But then there are so many um, in support who are the the peaceful, rational and non-violent, which you translate from um, Cantonese, it's, um, it's just amazing that the, I think the the um, no splitting can be maintained and such widespread community support. And I do think you, you capture that. Um, and I think that touches on a really important point about um, the rise in use of violence in the Hong Kong protests because, you know, uh, I do think that Hong Kong is largely, until recently, it's been, it's a largely peaceful, relatively safe kind of place to live, even the Umbrella Movement, you know, there was the Umbrella Movement protesters became known worldwide for their discipline and orderliness um, um, and that kind of thing. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it would be the elephant in the room to not talk about violence. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, both it's used by the Hong Kong police force, and um, the protesters.
1: Mm. No, it's a, it's a very good point. And, and the contrast here with, with the Umbrella Movement, it, it really is striking. Uh, uh, as I mentioned when I was talking about tear gas, there was one day of, of the use of tear gas, the first day of the Umbrella Movement, uh, and that in itself was it was a shocking event, and it, and it wasn't used by police again in 2014, but it was seen as a as a shocking event by the protesters. Uh, and there was uh, no violence from the protesters, really, in the, in the course of, of 2014. And 14. Um, now, in 2019, um, the violence on both sides was was really beyond anything Hong Kong had seen since the the Cultural Revolution riots of 1967. Um, uh, just to sort of, I guess, uh, unpack that a, a little bit. Um, I, the first point is that the, it was interesting and and frankly dispiriting and 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 a little uh, frightening to see the way that the violence. Uh, sort of escalated in a a self-perpetuating cycle. So it began perhaps that initially the the protesters were fairly peaceful and and the police used tear gas to disperse them. And so then in response to the tear gas, the the protesters uh, equipped themselves with with face masks and gas masks. And and so the the tear gas was less effective on them. um, And the police began to use uh, rubber bullets and sponge grenades and things like that. Um, In response to that, the protesters equipped themselves with, with shields and they began um throwing throwing bricks and, and throwing uh you know pieces of bamboo scaffolding as 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 javelins and things like that. Um uh, and then you know police began using water cannons against the protesters and in response the protesters increasingly began using Molotov cocktails and, and, and petrol bombs. Um to to be fair, they were not always used or not necessarily used to attack police, but often just used to try and slow police down or, or harass them or distract them. I think I don't think at any stage um, protesters were trying to 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 kill police officers or anything like that. Um, and then, of course, finally, we had police shooting live rounds into uh, protesters on a number of occasions. And so there was this gradual sense of of escalating violence throughout the, the months of protests last year, which was which was really very alarming to watch. And also a sense that it, one wondered what would what it would take to stop it. And really, the only thing that it would take to stop it was was the government engaging with the protest movement, and instead, all the government did was sort of denounce the use of violence and demand that violence stop. But you know, demanding violence stop isn't the way that you, you you get violence to stop. You you need to, to do something to address the the underlying issues you know, prompting the violence. But anyway, um, and, and so that was sort of I think the, the first aspect of the violence. Um, the, the second I think also dispiriting and alarming thing was how quickly it was normalized. You you, you mentioned Hong Kong is a very safe and very peaceful and non-violent city I, I forget the exact statistic but it's we've, we've had only one firearm homicide in something like six or seven years in Hong Kong wow, um, it's hard to believe it's I mean it's just unheard of um, I and mean, yeah. very very little violent crime in in, in this city um, and so that that's the city that, that people are used to living in and so to suddenly find ourselves in a city where not only key gas is fired on the streets every weekend but you know, Molotov cocktails are thrown on the streets every weekend and that we have police shooting protesters, um, you know, often from very close range. And even that didn't draw a huge amount of outrage or, or, or public outcry. It was almost as if it was expected. Um, and so it, it would really sadly reach this point where the level of violence had, had become normalized, um, in the course of these protests. And the thing that, that really alarms me is, is where that all heads, um, and I think that you know, the, the, there's a there's a, a sense that if if this is just a, is allowed to continue without it being the the fundamental issues being addressed, then where do we have to go? But but more violence. And I think that that's really something that's quite a, a frightening prospect for for Hong Kong and something that I don't think anyone wants to see. Um, and thinking about what we can do to avoid this cycle continuing is is a really key concern for for the the, the the immediate future of Hong Kong um, it, I think the other important point to note and I think it is the the other elephant in the room and, and goes back to the issue of the relationship between the community and the police earlier is is the 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 level of antipathy shown towards the police um, and the, the the breakdown in that in that relationship and, and it's, it's problematic on on really on both sides I mean indeed the police behaved. Um, uh, poorly and and with excessive force and with poor judgment on on numerous occasions last year. And there are many examples throughout the media of that happening. Um, That prompted a a huge amount of anger from the community in Hong Kong and and meant that Hong Kongers were really um, treating their police force in a way that that, that, that I, I think few police forces around the world would tolerate. Police became objects for abuse and ridicule whenever they appeared in public um, police stations were often effectively besieged um, by protesters. On some occasions, poli- protesters were using uh, catapults to fire bricks at the windows of police stations or police station police residences and things like that. I mean, the sort of thing that that is is that sort of behaviour towards a police force is, is unacceptable. I think in any civilized uh, any civilized society, you know, it needs yeah, to be recognised that that. That societies need their police forces, um, but it, it really showed this complete breakdown of trust and this complete breakdown in the relationship between the community and their police force. I think largely as a result of the police being pushed into this this political role that they should never have had, and this was a political problem, and and it, it always has been, and it needed to be addressed by a political solution, but instead by the government treating it as a law and order issue and nothing more than a law and order issue and shoving the police to the front line as the only interface between the government and the people through this entire seven-month protest movement, Um, it it, it pushed the police into uh, a role that they weren't equipped to handle and and were forced to use the tools of law and order to to try and and fix a a political problem. And those tools were not obviously suited to the task. um, And that led to this the sort of the dynamic that we saw playing out, um, and so uh, the, the the question sort of arises: Well, then, how do we how do we fix that relationship between you know the Hong Kong community and their police force? And one of I think my biggest con- concerns, or I think one, one, for me, one of the most frightening implications of of last year is that perhaps the government or, or or Beijing doesn't want that relationship to be fixed. That it's in Beijing's interest for the police to have their loyalty to Beijing and not to the community, to the people of Hong Kong. Um, and that the Hong Kong police force seem to be being pressed into this role as, as Beijing and the government's enforcers on the streets of Hong Kong. Um, and therefore this, this almost teleological cycle of violence and this breakdown in, in relationship between the community and the police, um, is not only of no concern, it may even suit their purposes from that point of view. Um. But that's sort of the, the, one of the other fundamental issues, along with the, how do we deal with this violence that that needs to be addressed if Hong Kong is going to, I guess, heal as a society and uh, and move forward um, coming out of of last year. But I, I fear that we're a long way from reaching that point yet.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. It is it's extremely concerning, and I think um, you're completely right about the police doing a political role, which and part in a large part, um, if not. The full reason is, as you describe in your book "City on Fire," because of the complete unresponsiveness of um, Carrie Lam and the, the government. Um, for, for example, you know when a million people came out, she rebuked them as naughty children, and this is this kind of pattern has just gone on and on and on. Um, oh, uh, and I think this builds on what you say in um, your previous book, "In City of Protest." Um, my my key takeaway from that was, and I think it's important for listeners outside Hong Kong to understand, is that, you know, Hong Kongers don't have other um, forms of political participation. And so protest has become essential as a way to communicate with government. And um, it's not always been successful, but at least it's been a way to kind of open chal- uh, channels of dialogue, whereas, yeah, sorry, you go on.
1: So I know that you're absolutely right. Um, it it's structurally the Hong Kong political system is is built such that there isn't a a, a full democratic system. Um, uh, people can elect effectively can elect half the legislature fully democratically, and the other half is is selected through the so-called functional constituency system, which is weighted in favor of pro Beijing parties. And then the chief executive, the head of the government, is not elected by the people. He or she is elected by a small circle um, election committee, again of mostly pro Beijing loyalists and so people don't have the ability to directly select their government here, um, but they do have and this is the point as I, as you said that I make in city of protest they do have the rights and freedoms that people enjoy in 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 other liberal democracies the freedom including freedom of speech and freedom to protest freedom of assembly and so uh, protest becomes a way for people to effectively voice their demands of the government um and for the for the government to hear them and and in many cases, the government has responded, as you say, not always, but over the years that it has generally been a, a successful method of political participation in Hong Kong. Indeed, as it proved to be last year, when the, the government wanted to introduce this extradition bill, um, if the the bill had gone ahead and been presented to the legislature, it would have passed because the, the rigged electoral system meant that the pro-Beijing parties have a majority and they would have passed the bill. But Hong Kong people exercised their rights and freedoms, protested, and um were successful in stopping the bill. And the bill was never presented to the legislature and it didn't go ahead. So it was a, a really little, a great little case study of that of that very dynamic. But then one of the other problems that we've seen growing alongside this, and and this is, I think, part of what was driving the frustration of the protesters last year, is that even the, on the one hand, even the limited scope for participation in the formal political process has been closed off to to young activists and dissidents. So we had the example of a number of um, pro-democracy candidates who'd been elected, um, you know, deliberately misreading their, their oaths of office and then being disqualified from the legislature. We've had other activist candidates being barred from running and sort of this political screening of candidates for election that's been happening. Um, and we've seen very extensive, frankly, politically motivated prosecutions of of political leaders and activists um, and politicians. And so in that sense, people feel, well, we can't participate within the system. And then on the other hand, the frustration has been that even when we protest peacefully, um, you ignored us. As you said, the first protest of a million people last year, Carrie Lam effectively Rebuked them as naughty children, um even after a second protest of two million people a week later, there was still very reluctantly that the government eventually you know a, a month or so later fully acceded to their demand to withdraw the bill and This led to this sense among protesters and it was really summed up in a in a in a slogan that was graffitied on the wall of the legislative council when it was broken into um, it was you that taught us peaceful protest doesn't work and so I think there's we have, we have to acknowledge that one of the things driving the 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 frustration and perhaps ultimately the violence is this sense that, you know, you you won't let us participate through the formal political protest process. You also won't listen to us when we protest as you would like us to protest, you know, in a peaceful and orderly fashion and, and following your, your 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 permit process for for protesting so what is left for us to do what, what more do we have to do to get your attention and to voice our to, to voice our views and to participate in the political process and i think that's something else that i think the government has to acknowledge and and interestingly after we had the district council elections at the end of November last year in which the pro democracy parties won a, a a huge majority um the, the protests sort of did die down, um, and this was even before the the coronavirus reared its head, and and there was a sense that oh you know, the, you'd think the government would realise oh when we have democracy and we give people a, a legitimate and formal channel through which to 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 voice their views and to participate in the political process there's no longer any need for for mass protests, and this is indeed what one of the functions a democratic system serves. Um, uh, but as I say that 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 is increasingly being foreclosed to people and, and there's a sense that what, 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 there's not many options left for them if they want to um, speak out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's easy if, you know, people are sitting at home watching television, um, you know, especially outside Hong Kong to immediately just dismiss the violence and condemn the violence um, on both sides. But I, I think it is more complex um, than, you know, just saying all violence is bad. Um, as you just said, you know, that theme that came from um, the graffiti, it was you that peaceful protest showed us that peaceful protest didn't work. Um, I think that's that's really interesting. And um, I think it points to one of the other themes that emerges from your book about how the space, the cityscape of Hong Kong has become somewhat contested. Mm,
1: Yes. So
0: both in a literal way in terms of how the protests happen, I really like you describe it as a three-act format Mm.
1: format
0: sort of like a dance, but also in terms of the, the cultural outpouring and who, you know, it's not clear who's really in control of the city. Um, yeah, maybe you can speak on that a bit.
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, I, I think it, as a way of background, it's it's important to understand the, the nature of the Hong Kong urban landscape. And there's a couple of features of Hong Kong that are perhaps different to to many other cities in the world. Um, the, the first is that it's um obviously it's a, it's a very densely populated city there's there's very little space um, in the urban areas. Um, progress around the city is, is is generally fairly circumscribed. So it's not a pedestrian friendly city um at the at the at the at the road level um it tends to be very much built for, for vehicles. Um, pedestrians get around by way of walkways and cross the road by way of underpasses and footpaths are fenced off from the roads with um, with, with metal barriers. So the way that you move around the city and engage with the city is very circumscribed by, by, by the government's urban architecture. Um, secondly, there's very little public space as such. Um, there are a few parks, certainly, but there's not the same, perhaps open large open areas of public space that we see in other cities. And much of that public space has been, as we say, privatized. So um, the government works with the MTR Corporation, the subway operator. Um, the subway operator is given um, property development rights over their stations as a way of subsidizing the operations of the, of the subway system. Uh, and so on top of the subway stations, the MTR Corporation cooperates with with property developers to build very large developments, which are usually involve a, a shopping mall podium, uh, a, uh, a apartment blocks, and sometimes some commercial developments and office office developments as well. Uh, and, and then public space is sort of contained within those developments. So the, the the public square, as it were, in Hong Kong is often the atrium of a shopping mall, for example. Um, and then people live within these residential developments on top of the MTR stations, because that's a very convenient way to get around town. Uh, but then their the day-to-day lives become tied up with this privatized space of the shopping malls and the MTRs, um, subway systems and walkways and, and, and so on. Um, and so that's sort of the the basic sort of features of of, of Hong Kong urban uh, urban landscape. I guess the, the last point to add also is that, of course, people obviously are living in very small apartments. And so much of Much of public life takes place and life with friends and family takes place not in the home, but in these privatized public spaces. So you'll gather with friends in shopping malls, you'll have dinner out in restaurants, um, uh, family occasions such as weddings and birthdays and anniversaries and those sorts of things are not generally marked by a party at home, but by a a gathering in in a restaurant or a a function at a a place in in one of these um, shopping malls or other sort of privatized public spaces. So So that's sort of of the key features of Hong Kong life. And then what happened really with the protests last year was the protests um, completely rewrote all of those rules and completely undid that urban architecture and remade it in in a way that was more – more frankly more friendly to the population um so a couple of different ways that we saw that happening the first was the 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 um the 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 dismantling of some of that urban architecture so for example protesters took down the metal barricades that um, that separated footpaths from the streets. They used them sometimes to build, to rebuild them as as their own barricades or refashion them into into battering rams, which they used to, to, for example, when they were laying siege to the Legislative Council building. Um, and then, of course, the protesters took over the roads. So suddenly, the the, the streets that had been very pedestrian pedestrian unfriendly. Um, and that you, where you couldn't really walk wherever you wanted to walk but you could only walk within very narrowly defined areas was suddenly given over to the people um during the large weekend protests you could walk on the street you you could the the, the this space suddenly became a huge public space for people to engage with and interact with um and and then many of these many of the these these changes sort of became uh, at least semi permanent for the for, at least for the course of of the protests some you know sometimes streets will be blocked off especially during the The few weeks of the university sieges, that many streets were blocked off, and 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 the cityscape had changed as as a result. Um, The second way that that the protests remade the cityscape is with the artwork that you mentioned. So, during the Umbrella Movement, we had uh, a site called the Lennon Wall. It was a site just outside the Legislative Council headquarters, where the main Umbrella Movement camp was. It was named after the Lennon Wall in 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 Prague, um, and it was a site for anti-government pro-protester artwork and messages, um, many little coloured post-it notes with messages of support, um, uh, lots of artwork and a very colourful space. Now, that was one size in the Umbrella Movement. Then in the course of the the protests last year, these linen walls sprang up all over the city, Um, uh, in particular in these subways and and walkways and near MTR stations, uh, wherever there was a, a highly trafficked public space. And what had previously been these very, Anonymous, bland public spaces that the government had sort of funneled people into suddenly became sites for linen walls, and people would paste up all kinds of artwork and posters and flyers, um, uh, information about the protest movement, uh, sort of protester messages, um, information about upcoming rallies, um, as well as just satirical artwork and and graffiti and and all sorts of colorful things. And they became these both. Sites for artistic and cultural expression, and, and very aesthetically engaging and interesting sites to be around, but also sort of little community centers where people would gather, would debate, would engage, would discuss, um, and just creating these these little cultural sites throughout the city that that hadn't existed before, and that really changed the experience of of, of being in the city and 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 people's you're traveling home or traveling to work or engaging in the in the city space around them, um, and I think that the last point just to to mention the other way in which people's relationship with the city changed was their engagement with with the shopping malls um, and and with these privatized public spaces and there was a sense in which people were reclaiming those spaces for themselves and a notable way that was done with was not only with with protests inside shopping malls. Um, but also with people gathering to to sing the the protest anthem, this Glory to Hong Kong, which was an anthem written in support of the protest movement. People would gather in shopping malls to to conduct mass singings of, of this song, um, and a way of sort of reclaiming this privatized public space for for the community um, and asserting, I think, their control over this public space. So, I mean, these just a few examples of the way that the, these fundamental relationship between the people and the space of the city was was remade. By the protest movement last year, in, in in really interesting, really interesting ways, and and I mean, in many ways in which it made the city, um, notwithstanding the the disruption of the protests and the violence and all the other things, um, a, a much more pleasant and engaging place to be in 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 many ways, and it's a pity that perhaps the government doesn't uh, pay, take more lessons from that in their own urban planning.
0: Yes, that's um that's a funny point. Um, as you you quote um the. Chinese, um, now living in Australia, artist, Du uh, Chao. Baidu Chao, Cha, mm. um, yeah. Du Chao, sorry. Yeah. And he says that his artwork dissolves their authority, that satire, humour and absurdity are extremely powerful in deconstructing the arrogance of power. Mm. And now the whole city is my gallery. So I, I do think that's a really interesting point that um, that you make, that the whole the city has changed and oftentimes for the better, and, and especially mm. in terms of the visual kind of, Artworks and Leonard walls. It's, it's yes. quite moving.
1: Yes, and it's interesting that you know, uh, two, I guess there are two points there, I think. The first point is that Hong Kong you know, has traditionally been. Um, maligned as a cultural desert and people sort of saying, mm-hmm. oh, there's no, there's no cultural life in Very true. Um And I think the, the, the second point is that people often had said, well, the, the Umbrella Movement failed because they didn't get the universal suffrage they were, they were, they were wanting. Um, and I think both of those points are undermined by the cultural output of the protest movement. That firstly, what we saw really from the Umbrella Movement through till now has been an incredible outpouring of culture, whether it's through this protest artwork um there's been uh, literature there's been filmmaking um so it's 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 sparked a, a real a cultural renaissance here in in Hong Kong frankly over the last five years um and then the second point is that I think that that cultural output is is precisely one of the main achievements of the umbrella movement that it sparked this this consciousness this this creative energy which carried through and and then was you know renewed with even greater vigor in the course of the protests last year um but yeah it's 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 been a very important part of of the protest movement and of, and of Hong Kong cultural life more generally. Um, and uh, again, it's something that that, that that has made Hong Kong a much more exciting and engaging place to be in the last five years compared to perhaps what it was 15 or 20 years ago.
0: Yeah. It's kind of um, grassroots culture and artwork and developing and evolving. Um, and one of the related to this is um, that you write about is some of the iconic symbols that have come out of the movement. You, Talked about um, singing of the protest anthem "Glory to Hong Kong," and then you also mentioned the book "The Lady Lady of Liberty," um, and then you describe these and other events. You call them protests of enchantment. Mm-hmm. Um, i wonder if you can talk a little bit about what these kind of protests of enchantment just to diffuse, especially the idea that all of the protests are violent. Um, because I th- yeah. Yeah.
1: No, no you're, you're quite right. Um, yes, and th- this is a, a, a really important point that, yeah, indeed, not all the protests were violent, and and indeed, the most successful protests, the ones that really captured the support and public ag- imagination, were what I referred to as as these moments that the protesters created moments of enchantment. That's that comes from a uh, an American political scientist named Jane Bennett, um, and she wrote about this idea of enchantment, this these moments that 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 stop time, that when you observe them. They sort of stop you in your tracks um, and they can be moments of aesthetic beauty or they can be moments of 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 community spirit or sometimes they can be spiritual moments but but they create in you a, a sense of wonder and awe and, and this is what uh, what Bennett calls the, the sense of enchantment and it, it struck me looking at the Hong Kong protests that it was precisely when they captured these moments of enchantment that the protests were most effective. Um, and, and seem to gather the most community support. So I think that the, the Lenin Walls are, are a wonderful example of these sites of enchantment, physical sites, where artwork is created to create a, to generate a, an aesthetic experience that really gathers the community together and helps to consolidate support for the movement. Um, another very striking protest that we had was this was what they called the Hong Kong Way. Uh, this was inspired by the Baltic Way, a, a protest um in the Baltic states, um, I think it was 20 years ago when the, uh, the all the members of the, of the Baltic countries linked up hands to form a continuous human chain across the Baltic states to uh, to, uh, to to press their um, independence from the Soviet Union. It might have been 30 years ago now. That I think about it. Um, and uh, and so um, uh, so we had what we call the Hong Kong way, where people came out of their homes down into their local communities and formed a continuous human chain all the way across Hong Kong. Um, uh, people holding hands on a, on a Friday night just for half an hour. Um, and the, 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 the sense of euphoria that moment generated um, uh, and the sense of solidarity and the community spirit that moment generated was, again, inspiring I think really helped to consolidate support for the protest movement at a time when there had been a few violent incidents and there was perhaps a, a risk that the, the movement might lose support. But that moment of enchantment, again, reconsolidated the community spirit and support around the movement. Um, and even the, the very large peaceful marches, I think, are, are, are enchanting moments to have
0: uh, yeah, uh, several
1: hundred thousand people on the streets marching peacefully, chanting together, carrying colourful placards and signs. It's a, it's, a, it's a moving experience and an enchanting experience. Um, and so I think those are the things that are the most effective Um uh, not, not the violent protests, and and it's important to remember that, that I think that they those are, are a very important part of people's experience of the protest movement here. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Um, that you know the Hong Kong protests are so unique, like that we've got these moments and these protests of enchantment. Um, so notwithstanding the violence, there's still so much support. You know, that's um created outpourings of culture, mass participation, mm. as you talk about. So I'm wondering, like. What can people learn from the Hong Kong model do you mm. think
1: so I think the pro- there, there are there are two things that people are taking away I mean the first is some of the specific strategies and tactics so mm. um, you know, things like uh, using hand signals to communicate amongst crowds or, or, or targeting airports as sites of protest or or using uh, you know, artwork and, and linen walls and these sorts of methods of, of communicating and creating enchantment and inspiration so all these specific Tactics that the Hong Kong protesters have, have been using, we, we've seen already, have, have been sources of inspiration for activists around the world, whether they're extinction extinction rebellion protesters in in the UK and Australia or, or Catalan independence protesters in in Spain. Um, so that's, that's the first thing I think people have been learning. But I think there's a, there's a more fundamental point, which is, and I think the most important point that 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 what the Hong Kong protest movement shows is. Um, that communities are engaged and and care about politics and care about what happens to their community and when there is a cause they will stand up and and speak out i mean you know hong kong is a place that you know people have, have often you know, said, oh, it's 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 all about money. People aren't interested in politics, and and and, and again, young people are, you know, we don't, you know, pe- young people are interested in politics. They're just interested in, I don't know, you know, playing computer games or what have you. Um, you know, and 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 this protest movement really showed just how untrue all of those um sort of old hacksaws are that you know that Hong Kong people do care about politics. They don't just care about money. Um, that young people are incredibly engaged and passionate and willing to. To, to speak up and, and stand up and, and even put their, put their bodies on the line for the causes that they believe in. Um, and, and I think this is the same with communities around the world. Hong Kong's not unique in that way. So whatever cause people may, may have in mind, and I, I think obviously the climate crisis is, is the biggest one, that um, it's important not to be sort of stuck in, in apathy or defeatism or a sense that, you know, people don't care or that they, they aren't going to stand up when um, you know, at the moments of crisis, as as Hong Kong experienced, the people did stand up and speak out, and I think that uh, it provides, I think, hope for for people everywhere.
0: Yeah, um, I think that's what struck me most, um, about the protests as well. That it's just sustained this support and the real sense of community that, and people are not apathetic. That they will, mm. as you say, like they're prepared to put their bodies on the line for something they believe in. Um, mm. Mm. Yeah.
1: And, and that was what was so striking last year that, that every week we'd sort of say well is this is this surely they're not they can't come out again this week but that must be it. They, they, you know they, they must be losing support by now but uh, they just kept coming week after week after week um and, and not just for you know uh, you know a few weeks but but for 7 months um yeah. and that was I just found really remarkable that this this, can, this 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 determination and this spirit and this solidarity that the community continued to show
0: yeah, it's just just amazing. It's awe inspiring. I think. Um,
1: yeah, it really.
0: Is. Yeah. So, Anthony, I've taken up quite a lot of your time, but just before you go, um, just one quick question. Um, usually, at this stage of the interview, I ask the person what they're working on now, and I, I am very interested in knowing what you're what you'll be doing next. Um, but I'm also interested in knowing what your predictions for Hong Kong are. I mean, of course, nobody knows, and it was the same last year. It was kind of like how long will this go on um but you know we are all under semi relative lockdown at the moment um but you, you know still there are things going on you know we've had we uh within the last two weeks there was the arrest of the 15 pro-democracy leaders um and you know there's been renewed enthusiasm by the pro-government camps to enact article 23 legislation which um for listeners outside Hong Kong, would prohibit treason, succession, sedition, and suburban, subversion against the central government. And there's concerns that this would be a further restriction on civil liberties. Um, at the same time, we saw on the weekend, there are some small protests still starting to take place. Um, these were, you know, there was, you know, the singing of Glory to Hong Kong in a shopping mall, and which, of course, was also attended by riot police. So I'm interested to know what do you think? Will happen next. Um, yeah. yeah Where's I, from here? I
1: I think we're we're in for a, a another very um rocky time ahead for Hong Kong. Um, it, it was always clear that that Beijing was not going to allow Hong Kong to get off scot free. That, that that sooner or later there would be a reckoning for the level of defiance that Hong Kong. And the Hong Kong people displayed towards the central government in, in last year, and, and at a level that that simply, you know, Beijing does not tolerate. Um, and I think we, in the last couple of weeks, we have seen the beginning of that reckoning with um, the arrests of some of the most senior and most high-profile, and indeed most moderate, um, pan-democrat politicians and and protest leaders. Uh, in terms of very bellicose rhetoric coming out from Beijing about the need for national security legislation, um, attacks upon pan-Democrat legislators and their behavior um, in various legislative committees, um, and some very alarming statements that have implications for Hong Kong's rule of law with with the Central Government Liaison Office and the Hong Kong Macau Affairs Office, the sort of two key departments of the central government that oversee Hong Kong, um, effectively declaring themselves to be above the law and to have a right to interfere in Hong Kong as they see fit. Um, So these are all very alarming developments. and I, and, I, and I think show that Beijing intends to continue to tighten its grip um, on Hong Kong in particular as we head towards um, elections coming up this September we have our, our elections for our legislature um, in September and that's going to be a key focal point for Beijing of course, but it's also going to be a key focal point for the protesters and for and for the Democrats and the activists and none of the issues that that caused the protest last year have have been resolved um, other than the extradition bill, of course, but all the other issues have not been resolved. The the population is still clearly angry and defiant. And and I think as soon as the circumstances permit in terms of of lockdowns ending and social distancing ending, um, protests will resume. And I think in particular in the lead up to the elections, uh, we will see a lot of protests um, and a lot of activism. And and I think we could be in for, as we had last year, another another so-called summer of discontent. and so uh, i uh, i think we're we're up for p- perhaps a you know, a more protest more more conflict and and I think really all eyes are on this election in September, whether it will be allowed to happen on terms that are that are fair and and open and 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 not interrupted or in, interfered with or manipulated in any way um and then to see what the outcome of those elections are um that's what we have to look forward to um and in answer to your other question, what am I working on at the mm-hmm. moment? Uh, lockdown has meant that I can uh, sort of focus on some writing, and just for something entirely different, I'm I'm at work on a novel. So uh, I'll oh, wow. uh, see if I can uh, work on on fiction or something I- entirely different, and we'll uh, well we'll see how that goes.
0: Well, reading your book City on Fire, um, I I think it'll it'll be a great read. I mean, it's it's unusual that you have a non-fiction book like this that you just can't put down. I you know, certainly I I enjoyed it so much. Um, I, I it actually it took me a long time to read because I kept going back and looking at um, you know looking for clips on YouTube or looking for pictures um, because it was just so interesting. So I'm sure your non uh, your fiction book will um, it'll be equally engaging if not more so. Well, thank you. It's reading it. No, no. Thank <laughs> um, so thank you for your time, Anthony. Today, um, I mean, your predictions for Hong Kong they don't sound optimistic. I. We all hope, I think, that you're wrong in the sense that you know we things are resolved, but it it doesn't look. It doesn't look great. So, if you are looking for a great read about the Hong Kong protests, I could not recommend Anthony Daparan's book Enough. It is a sort of insider's guide being on the ground that you'll feel um, you'll you'll feel like you're on the ground in Hong Kong without actually having to breathe in the tea gas. So it's a great read. Um, it's City on Fire: The Fight for Hong Kong published by Scribe Publications in 2020. really is a great page-turner that I enjoyed. I could not recommend it enough. I'm Jane Richards, and you've been listening to the New Books in Law podcast for the New Books Network.